received an email from Lance Keeling in Teopisca this morning. Actually, it was last night. Uh, says, it saddens me to tell you that one of the little 10-year-old girls, Rosalinda, at the orphanage passed away last night at 10 p.m. She's the same little girl that Crosspoint helped out financially last year as you paid most all of her three-week hospital bill. She was once again in the hospital because her liver continued to fail and other respiratory issues. Praise God that I was able to see her yesterday, and for about an hour, I was with her by myself. I spoke to the doctor, and he told me that she probably would not live but a few weeks at the max, and about 10 p.m. last night, she passed away due to cardiac arrest. We had a service for her today, and her little body is buried in Tail Pisgah. And uh, we give glory to God because she's now with the Lord and is not suffering anymore. So he asked us to be in prayer for Carlos and Yara, who are the, Carlos is the, sort of the pastor of the little orphanage there, and uh, for her little sister, Araceli, and uh, the other children of Casa Hogar, Canaan. So let's pray for them, and I'd like to pray for a local pastor and his wife. God, we are thankful that you are sovereign, and um, nothing happens that, except by either your design or your allowance, and that all in all that you are glorified and good and attentive and engaged and involved, and as we think about um, this little orphanage and um, a little sister and a man and his wife who've given themselves to ministering to uh, little children. I would think about Lance and Sarah and uh, the boys and others that are connected to this, this little girl, Rosalinda. Uh, our hearts are broken. And uh, at the same time, we are celebrating that this little girl professed to know you and uh, is united by faith to Christ. And we trust and hope with everything in us that she's in the presence, in your presence this morning, enjoying you face to face. And um, thankful for the ministry there. Uh, just thankful for the work. Pray that you will give uh, Lance and Sarah and uh, that you would give uh, Carlos and Yara um, kingdom eyes, uh, eyes of faith that see uh, that what the, the work that they're tending to is a work that has value and a work that's part of your plan and that they'll be encouraged in that. I pray that you will uh, give them a unique peace that they can't explain right now, trusting you and enjoying you and even your design that seems early and uh, premature and um, surprising. Lord, also along that lines of praying for this uh, little situation in Teopisca, I want to lift up Larry and Barbara Allgood. As uh, Barbara is just really sick, Larry is pastoring Crossroads Assembly of God. I want to lift up this man and um, this family, thinking about what a what a massive, massive ministry, not only to a church but to a, a wife who's ailing. Lord, I pray that you will keep in in check uh, the priority there, that Barbara gets his first and his best, and I pray that his church, in fact would be teammates in that ministry to Barbara and that they would come alongside Larry and minister to him in a way that would make much of you and uh, would put the beauty of walking with the people on display. Um, thankful for his years of ministry here in Greenville and to this church. Just pray that you'll sustain him and that you'll sustain this church in this time as they minister to Barbara. Lord, in these next few minutes, I just want to just turn this time over to you. I want to turn this messenger over to you confessing that I am uh, frail, feeble, um, distracted, troubled. Um, I'm all the things that uh, probably everybody else is in this room and standing and supposedly, supposedly delivering this morning. I pray for a clarity that I know I don't have right now, that the Spirit will speak through me and in spite of me to your people, and that we will better understand how we can put the gospel on display relative to our rights. I'm just thankful for this time. Thankful for folks being here this morning. I'm thankful for the appetite in this body, for your truth and your ways, for fellowship, relationships, not only with each other, but most of all with you. 
And uh, we enjoy all, this, all those things together in this setting this morning and look forward to the table that we'll partake of in a few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I want to give you kind of a map for the morning. I'm going to have a little introduction here and then a map. And I'll tell you right now, the sermon is funny. I've had like three weeks to work on this sermon, and it's still just not tight. And I'm just kind of dra- dragging that into the light so we can shoot it. And I'm thankful that this isn't performance because if, if it was a performance, I might be nervous about it. Um, but it's actually a family sitting around the table this morning enjoying a meal. So um, we will do our best to work through this. The plan for the map for where we're going as I have sort of an introduction for you. And then we're going to look at three different passages. One in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to kind of jot down the plan, at least gives you a map of where we're going so you know where we're sitting in the journey. We're going to look pretty carefully at 1 Corinthians 6, and then Matthew chapter 5, and then James chapter 2. And then we're going to look at three case studies, three examples of someone who has rights in the right place, okay? Now, let me go back to the introduction. You'll kind of understand how that all fits together. We are in sort of the tail end of a series of sermons dealing with how to work through conflict. What is God's design and his plan for conflict? And how can we as God's people walk through it in a way that makes much of him, a way that brings glory to him? Uh, Scott and I both, and in fact, talking with Greg Fields, who's here this morning, uh, Greg shared that he kind of had this lingering feeling. He worked through some of these things with uh, Westminster Presbyterian. And he said one of the things that he regretted was not having a Sunday to dealing, dealing with rights. And the more and more Scott and I began to talk about it, we realized that that made a lot of sense. So that's what this morning is, is dealing with where do our rights fit in when it comes to conflict? How do we keep those in perspective and what view should we have of those? I was, uh, I spent some time with Jerry Morris yesterday riding our bicycle and we were talking about things and and I mentioned to him sort of the plan. We were actually driving home from Rockwall and I couldn't remember the class that I had as a kid that dealt with government, and it was civics class. Jerry just said, yeah, civics, you know. And I realized, yeah, civics class is where I learned the song about the bill. It was funny. I pulled it out this morning. Just, I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Remember that song? It's funny that everybody remembers that. I wonder if younger kids get that. But that, I mean, that was really life-altering for me was learning these sort of things about bills and other things that we learned. In, and I'm being facetious there. It wasn't so much as I just remember the weird song. But I learned other things in this class that I really, in these classes growing up as kids, in these civics classes where you learn about your rights and you learn about your duties as, as a citizen in the United States of America. And from my earliest days, I remember conversations and lessons and teaching on the Declaration of Independence I remember as a kid hearing these words for the first time, and well, maybe not for the first time, but the first few times, these things that were sort of ingrained in me and likely were ingrained in you, we hold these truths to be self-evident. A lot of you could, could finish this out on your own. That all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are like apple pie and baseball for us. If you paid attention in your civics class, you know what I'm talking about there. Those were built into us. Something else that was built into us was the Bill of Rights, which came a few years after the Declaration of Independence, where things were protected and offered and given for us as American citizens, like the freedom of speech, freedom of press, and something that we're enjoying right now this morning, freedom of assembly. These are good things. And things that we treasure as Americans, right to bear arms would be fitting in, would, would fit into that Bill of Rights. While I appreciate these rights that we have as Americans, we should know, every time I say we as Americans, I think of the maps that most U.S. Americans don't have maps. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of you might remember that. It's pretty funny. It has nothing to do with this sermon. It just makes me laugh on the inside. So I bet Aaron Hamilton knows exactly. Exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I appreciate the rights that we have as Americans. 
Americans, we should know that God's ways trump our rights as Americans. I want you to hear that this morning, fellow civics students. God's ways trump even our rights. Long before America was even thunk of, God the Son set aside his rights to take on flesh and a family and take on dependence of things like food and water and fatigue even and suffering and death. So there is this way and this design that trumps even what our founding fathers established for us in the Constitution as they won our independence and nailed down what our inalienable, inalienable rights are. What I want you to see bird's eye view this morning, bird's eye picture is that we as God's people should enjoy those rights as we're enjoying freedom of assembly right now, but we should hold loosely to them relative the gospel. That's the plan for the morning to show you that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, or, uh, excuse me, chapter 6. You may be there already, but if you're turning there, let me just kind of give you a little bit of setting, a little bit of context for the Corinthian church. If you've been paying attention during this series on conflict, you know that the Corinthian church seems to be the go-to church in dealing with conflict and division. Nearly, if not every single Sunday that we've had sermons dealing with conflict, we've dealt with passages in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians, in some cases both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This church was saturated with division the little headings in our Bibles are sort of helpful for me. They sort of give you a reference for context. Even if you take just a second to look at the headings in chapter 1, halfway down the page, divisions in the church. The divisions the Corinthian church were experiencing were over teachers. I like this teacher. I like that teacher. I prefer this teacher. You prefer that teacher. Divisions in the church. It's like having an argument over whether CBS News is better than ABC News like having an argument over which is better to cover your Bible, leather or pleather or vinyl. It's a ridiculous argument, and it's led to division in the church. And you see even on the next page in chapter 3, divisions in the church over teachers again. And this church is saturated not only with division, but they are saturated and plagued with worldliness and sin. In some ways, these two letters, the first and second Corinthians letters, show us how not to move as a church. And we can learn through God's teaching through Paul how we are to move as a church and as people within his church. First Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through verse 8. And this is where I was talking about things really aren't tight. So I'm glad it's not a performance. We're just going to do our best to unpack the freight in, this verse, in these eight verses and make sense of them because there's something we can walk away with from this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one, of you, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, let me tell you, the Roman Empire was pretty modern when it came to government. I don't know if they would have had civics class, but apparently there's some development of rights. There's some development of legal rights and legal opportunities to where they are going to law, he says here, and they're exercising their rights within the Roman Empire. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let me unpack a little bit of this. First of all, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Maybe talking about people that also have a real defined sense of their rights and their legal opportunities in the Roman Empire. One of the first things we can glean from this passage is to realize, in this case, grievances. Later in the passage, they're called disputes and cases happen even between believers. Just knowing this, the church is years old. The church is an infant. And here in the early church, there are already cases where there are grievances, disputes, and cases between believers. Knowing that, first of all, should sort of give you the opportunity to sort of exhale. If you find yourself in a dispute with another believer, to realize, oh, I'm not experiencing something strange and something new. In fact, it's ages old. It should put you in a place where if you are experiencing, first of all, a grievance or a dispute or a case with another believer, it may be your spouse. It may be your neighbor. Maybe someone you work with. It may be somebody in your church. If you're experiencing that, you don't have to bail on it because it's something new under the sun. <laughs> it happened in the Corinthian church, in the infant church, so you're not experiencing something new and something strange. So you can sort of exhale and go, okay, I'm not experiencing something different, but something that's been familiar to the church ever since the beginning. Also from this first verse, there's the implication that laws have been broken and that Roman rights are in play here and that someone has the opportunity by right to seek justice in public court. The word that's used later is, shouldn't you rather be defrauded? That's implying that there's some sort of physical loss some of you that use the language all the time about stewardship, well, it's not good stewardship to let this happen. You can make an idol of stewardship. In this case, it apparently, there's the, the problem that apparently they're losing some physical stuff. And maybe they've made an idol of stewardship, and I'm going to take you to court over it, buddy. Believe it or not, we're going to sort this thing out because I'm supposed to be a good steward with this after all. We're going to reconcile this and make this right. Then in verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? The next thing we can glean from this passage is that we can realize and embrace and enjoy that justice is part of God's character and it's his design for his people. We are to judge. We are to seek justice and seek righteousness. It's not something that you just have to completely abandon whenever you become a believer. That's not the point of this message. In fact, he says you're to exercise judgment and justice in this age and in the age to come. So you don't have to separate something that you know is part of God's character of being just. So seeking a righteous outcome to a grievance or a dispute or a case can still be God-honoring. And in fact, it may represent his character. Okay, keep that in the, put that in the little database there that we're building. Put that in the little connection and things that we're making. And then in verse 4, here's the problem. If you have such cases, grievances or disputes or such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And the problem is restated in verse 6. Brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. The problem in the Corinthian church is not necessarily that they're having disputes and grievances. That's a problem. But the big problem Paul is dealing with here 
is that they're dealing with them in front of unbelievers. They're dragging those things in front of unbelievers to sort them out. And then in verse five, go back to verse five. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Can it be that there is no Steve Kaiser among you that you can go to to help sort out this problem? Is there no Bill Ruth among you that you can say, Bill, can we borrow some of your time where you can listen to this scenario and this problem and that we can submit to your decision and that you can help us sort this out? It's to your shame you're unwilling to do that. And you're dragging this in front of public court, in front of unbelievers. Something else we can glean from this passage is that there are ways to work through disagreements and conflicts and grievances and disputes and even cases that are God-honoring. And the example that he uses here is mediation. Go grab somebody wise to help you sort it out. Humble yourself to the point where you're willing to grab a wise person in your church. Maybe it's a small group shepherd. Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's an elder. Sir, brother, can you spend some time with us helping us work through this in a way that will honor our God? See, justice can still be sought, but it's sought in a way that makes much of God and frankly reflects his character. Justice can be sought in a way that here's a word. I can't remember who I heard recently that used this word. It may have been Greg Fields. It sounds like a word Greg Fields would use. Picking on Greg. Besmirch. You ever use that word? I don't know where the word came from. I'm sitting here studying. And the word. What, what you're doing there, when you drag people into public court, brothers and sisters into public court, is you're besmirching, smearing the name of our God. When you step outside his design and do it your own way, maybe even walking in your Roman-given, American-given rights, you can do that in a way that besmirches his character. To have lawsuits with one another at all is already a defeat for these Corinthians, and doing it in the public square is a public double defeat. Paul's making the point here is that you can be right, but yet you can be wrong in how you handle it. Something that you may rightfully seek in court may not, as a Christian, be rightfully sought. Hear that. May not be rightfully sought. While you may be legally right, you may be wrong to pursue it. And Paul says, why not, this is like the crescendo of the, the, the passage, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded than besmirch the character and name of our Lord? Why not, the point that he's making here, hold very loosely to those rights because the gospel is at stake? Paul gives some design here. Thankfully, he doesn't leave them with something that they're messed up or that they're doing poorly. He gives them some design and some, play, some plans and some ways to move here in the next passages. Look at verse 9. We're going to kind of move our way through verse 9 and 10 and then really get to the goods in verse 11. We're going to look at three passages. This verse 11, and then we're going to look at this Matthew chapter 5. And then we're going to look at this James chapter 2. And we're going to see here what should guide us more than our rights. What should guide us more than our rights? Look at this first one. Do you not know that the unrighteous, i.e., this is how you guys are moving when you drag stuff like this into public settings in front of unbelievers, don't you know that unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, Corinthian church, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, it's a good word, but you were washed. 
you were baptized. You were washed like an offering that's made in the tabernacle or temple before it's offered. You were washed. Then, that's past tense. You were sanctified. You were consecrated. You were set apart. And you were, here's the word that I really want to enjoy in this situation, this conversation. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were justified. If you want to know how you ought to move, consider the fact that you were justified. What that word means is that in the, in the, the voice of that word in the Greek is that it's a passive voice. It was something that was done to you. It was something that was reckoned toward you. You stand in the high court of heaven wearing filthy garments, and he takes those garments off of you and puts the righteous clothing of another on you. You're still dirty, but you are reckoned just. You are reckoned righteous because the judge said so. That's what that word means there. You are reckoned just. You wear the righteous clothing of another. Consider for a moment, if you're like me and you have this massive overdeveloped sense of justice and what's right and wrong and what's fair, Consider for a moment if God exercised his rights toward you. Consider for a moment if God exercised his rights as a just God toward you. If he only moved in his rights. When I'm considering that for a moment, I'm thinking, okay, there would be no ark and there would be no cross. If all he ever did was exercise his rights as a just God, there would be no ark and there would be no cross. What would happen to us if God moved only according to his rights? Y'all need to know, Crosspoint Fellowship, know that if you're ruled by your rights, you will have much in common with the troubled Corinthians. And your life will be saturated with conflict. And frankly, you'll not be moving as sons of the Most High. That takes us to our next passage, Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. What should guide us more than our rights? Let's see what this passage can tell us. Verse 38 says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anybody else in here enjoy that? Anybody ever, anybody take something from you? You like the thought of them getting just desserts? Anybody else like the thought of that? I like that about God, that he's just. My overdeveloped sense of justice likes that passage. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I'm thinking, Yeah. Boy, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but he doesn't stop right there. And he doesn't negate that reality about our God that he is in fact just by what he says next. He completes it. He rounds it out. You need that backdrop of that very developed sense of justice. Embrace that, enjoy that. Yeah, boy, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I like that about God. Everybody like that about God for a second, then let me read the next passages. Like that about our God? And then listen to this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What? Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you? I'm reading those things and I'm just going, man, that's not fair. Those don't sound fair to me. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that sounds fair. But these other things don't really sound fair to me. So he's bound to be making a point here. Let's see the point that he develops. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's fair. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, 
Listen to what he says next. You will be sons of your father who is in heaven. You want to move in a way that's completely contrary to the world, which is the way that you ought to be moving? Move in this way. In a way that doesn't exact an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but actually moves in a very contrary way. In a way that puts on display the character of our father. When you do that, you're moving as sons of our father. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you're just living by justice, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read that passage before, and I think, okay, well, that is not, never going to happen. Perfect? I mean, he must have been sort of hyperbolic there. You know, it's perfect. I mean, really? In studying that word closer, what I've realized is that word actually means, can be translated, Complete. Listen to this passage. You don't need to turn to it. Just listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The reason I share that passage is because I want you to see the difference between the partial or the incomplete and the perfect and complete. The point that I think is being made here that we can enjoy together, the point is being made that when you move in this way, you're moving in a way that's complete and consistent with who you are as one who bears the name of Christ. When you move in a way that lives by your own rights, demands your own ways, you're moving in a way that's incomplete. You're moving in a way that's not consistent with who you are. You're not moving wholly. You are undeservedly swimming in mercy and withholding that kind of mercy from another that is imperfect, inconsistent, and incomplete. We are to be moving as sons of the Most High. Turn to James chapter 2. This is a good passage right here, boy. If there's ever a guy, an author, writer, you know, inspired writer in our New Testament who's leaning in the direction of an eye and eye for an eye, you would think that it would be James. But listen to this passage in James, chapter 2, verse 12. We're asking and answering the question, how, how then when should we move? Listen to this passage. Verse 12 of chapter 2. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You hear that? So act and so move as an employee of business X, as a wife of husband Y, as a husband of wife Z. Running out of letters, I need to start back at the beginning. As a youth, young person, daughter or son, of parents X and Y. So act and so move as ones who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You think about how you ought to move. You ought to move as sons of the Most High. You ought to move as those who have been reckoned just, though there's nothing in you just on your own. And move as ones who are open to be judged by the law of liberty. Those of you and me who have this massive sense of what's right and what's just and what's fair, realize you don't want to be judged according to what's fair and what's just and what's right. None of us deserve to be wearing the righteous clothing of another. None of us. 
We all want to be judged according to the law of liberty, the law of mercy, not the law of rights and what you think you're due. That should characterize us as we hope it characterizes our Father when we stand before him in judgment. Now, three case studies, three examples. There are many examples in our Bible. I'll give you some names and some references here that I'm not going to deal with. Abraham is a good example of one who's relinquished his rights to Lot, to first choice of the land. References Genesis chapter 13. Joseph is one who relinquished his rights to have his brothers held accountable for how they treated him and what they did to him. He gave up those rights in Genesis chapter 50. King David is another example. The story of Shemaiah, 2 Samuel chapter 16, a great story. And then 2 Samuel chapter 19, you see it come full circle. 2 Samuel chapter 19. But the first case study, the guy I really want to take a close look is Paul. Turn to 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a passage I read last week, and I'm thankful that we're coming back to it this week. This was actually the design to deal with it this week, and I'm glad we're coming back to it because there's a little bit of cleanup. There's one specific thing I need to clean up as we're coming back to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to start with reading it, and then we're going to move into, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. You're going to get the gist of it just from the reading of it, starting in verse 3 of chapter 9. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Paul's talking about as an apostle, as a church planter, as one who started the Corinthian church along with a team of people. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barney and I who have no right to refrain to work from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I shared with you last week, what he's developing here is the problem that the Corinthian church is not providing for Paul. They're treating him like a chump. Paul, what you're bringing to this body as planter and preacher and pastor has no value, and we're going to treat you like a chump. So Paul was forced to go out and be a tent maker and find his own employment. Who serves as a soldier at his expense? He's dealing with this problem of faithlessness in dealing with their pastor or their planter, in this case, the Apostle Paul. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Paul is making the argument that I should be partaking from the fruit here. It should be providing for me. I shouldn't have to go get a job. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. It's not ungodly for a pastor to expect his body to provide for him while he's tending to the flock. If you carry some baggage there, realize you're carrying Corinthian baggage. He goes on with the argument. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? If you expect to pay your cleaner, if you expect, and this was what I want to do in cleanup, if you expect to pay the person that made the cake at the wedding, which what I wanted to say and clean up is that cakes are very important. Emily Higgins, cakes are important. (laughs) Please pay the cake baker or whatever you call them, the cake maker. It's a very important job. But Paul's saying, wouldn't you expect to provide for someone who's sown spiritual things into you? Paul says, nevertheless, we've not made use of this Right. I don't know of a better example in our Bible of someone who's holding loosely to his rights and listen to the rationale. We endure, though, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If it means in the Corinthian church that you providing for me my right as a pastor or preacher, if it means getting in the way of the gospel, 
I give it up. If it's an obstacle to the gospel in this church, I give it up. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? He continues on with the argument. Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. (laughs) Listen to verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul has a right to provision as a pastor and a planter and as apostle, and he gives it up. To exercise the right would to be put to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel in Corinth anyway. He says, I won't do it. I'll even be a chump if it means the gospel is further. That's, that's what he's saying there. I'll be a chump. Put it, give me a T-shirt, chump on my back. I'll wear it. If it means staying out of the way of the gospel, I'll do it here in Corinth. And the blessings in that is the gospel was advanced and the gospel was not hindered. Now, let me show you the flip side on Paul. Turn to Acts chapter 22. Just so you know that this isn't a message on always giving up your rights, you're going to understand why and how you move in your rights. Paul is this great example. He shows us here that he holds very loosely. I grabbed this candle last week. He holds very loosely to his rights. He says, I have a right to that, but I give it up for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, watch what Paul does here in Acts chapter 22. It's pretty cool. It's going to make sense of this whole thing. In Acts chapter 22, just look at the headings. Paul speaks, Paul's arrested at the temple. He gets to speak to the people. Moving to chapter 22, right at the beginning of the heading, Paul and the Roman tribune. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. He's sharing the gospel as he's arrested. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? Not examined by questioning. Examined by flogging. Okay? To find, a, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul is exercising his rights here. He gave up his rights with the Corinthian church, but here as he's spread out for the flogging, he exercises his rights. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. It's against the law for us to do this. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, sure I am. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a Roman citizen though by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. In this case, Paul exercises his rights, and what it means, what it makes for, is the furthering of the gospel. If you read on in Acts chapter 22, he has a two-year ministry to Felix and his wife Drusilla. And again, he exercises his rights in requesting to appeal before Caesar. When he exercises his rights, or doesn't exercise his rights, what seems to be driving it is the advancement of the gospel. I'm not going to to exercise my rights in Corinth, because if I do, it's going to get in the way of the gospel. I am going to exercise my rights here in Jerusalem, because if I don't, the gospel is going to be thwarted. See what's driving Paul? Is the gospel. Great example. Now, an extra biblical example. And then we'll end 
with the supreme biblical example. Here's the second example and an extra biblical example. This is from the Peacemaker's book, Ken Sandy. A lot of this has been referenced a lot the last month and a half as we've been working through this. Listen to this story. The principle of relinquishing rights to advance God's kingdom was illustrated in one of my first conciliation cases. This is Ken Sandy writing. Ted worked for a government agency. As a new believer, he was excited about his salvation and wanted to have a positive witness for Christ among his co-workers. Ted and his supervisor, Joan, had never gotten along well, partly because Ted continually tried to tell her how to run her department. (laughs) Doesn't sound like a great business plan. His enthusiasm for Christ provoked her further. As her frustration toward Ted increased, Joan gave him particularly difficult work assignments, even though she knew he had a back problem. Hmm. Eventually, he injured his back and had to leave work for several months. Although he received some disability benefits, Ted lost several thousand dollars due to missed wages and additional medical expenses. As a result, he filed a lawsuit against Joan and the agency. Climb into the story. By the time Ted came to see me, he had returned to work and the lawsuit was moving slowly through the court system. During our first conversation, Ted and I identified several ways he had contributed to the conflict with Joan. Seeing his own fault more clearly, Ted began to consider settling the lawsuit by accepting the $5,000 the agency had offered him a few days earlier. Although his damages exceeded that amount, his attorney advised him to accept the settlement. On the other hand, several of Ted's friends were encouraging him to demand more money or continue the litigation. I think pretty much any of us could climb into this story. I mean, it's a very present-day story. A few days later, Ted surprised me by saying that he was going to drop his lawsuit without accepting the settlement offer. He had a right to that money. He's going to drop the whole thing and not accept a settlement offer. The more he had reflected on his own fault in the matter, the less comfortable he felt about accepting money from the agency. At the same time, he had concluded, hear this, that laying down his right to restitution would be an effective way to demonstrate the mercy and forgiveness that he himself had received from God. Homeboys want to move like sons of the Most High. He's wanting to reflect in this story, this scenario, the character of his own God. The mercy and grace that he swims in, he's wanting to be on display in how he moves. If he's judged according to the law of liberty, he's wanting to move according to the law of liberty. The next morning, Ted went in to talk with Joan. This is where it gets good. He admitted that he had been disrespectful, arrogant, and rude and asked her for forgiveness. Bam, boom, kaboom. I love it. He admitted that he was wrong? Sounds like a believer. Jones seemed suspicious of his motives, you can understand, and said little in response. Ted went on to explain that he had forgiven her for ordering him to move the heavy boxes and that he was dropping his lawsuit. Finally, he said he hoped they could start over in their relationship and learn to work together in the future. More suspicious than ever, Joan asked why he was doing this, and he replied, I became a Christian, a son of the Most High, a year ago. And God is slowly helping me face up to a lot of my faults, including those that contributed to the problems between you and me. God also has shown me that his love and forgiveness for me is absolutely free. He's walking according to the law of liberty and that I can do nothing to earn or deserve it. I've been wearing the righteous clothing of another. And since he's done that for me, I decided I wanted to act in the same way toward you. Boom. Amazed by his answer, Joan mumbled something like, oh, I see. Well, let's bygone be bygones. Thanks for coming in. Although Joan's response wasn't quite what Ted had hoped for, he walked out of her office knowing that God had forgiven him and that he had at least given Joan a glimpse of that forgiveness. And he's walking out of her office, $5,000 lighter. He doesn't have $5,000 that he could have had by right. Ted soon discovered that Joan was telling others about their meeting. Sometimes when folks come to Crosspoint, they're like, man, tell me about your church. Tell me about your evangelism ministry. And I'm thinking to myself, You're our evangelism ministry, Ted. You're our evangelism ministry, 
Ted. The next day, a union representative who had heartily supported the lawsuit against Joan confronted Ted and asked whether he had really dropped his lawsuit. And then Ted said, yes. And the man said, is it true that you did it because you're a Christian? And Ted again said, yes. And the man's scowl turned to a look of puzzlement. As the man walked away, Ted heard him say to a bystander, that's the first time I've ever seen a Christian's faith cost him anything. Boom. Man, that's salt right there. That's aroma right there. That is a beautiful witness. Like ripples in a pond, word of Ted's action spread throughout the department. You think it would have if he had taken the five G's? A few days later, two coworkers asked to meet with him over lunch once a week to discuss the Bible. <laughs> later, other coworkers asked him questions about his faith. For the first time since Ted's convert conversion, he felt he was really helping people learn about God's love. Although Joan continued to treat Ted rudely at times, he learned to submit to her authority and use her provocations as further opportunities to show God's work in his life. When she was replaced a few months later, there was no doubt in Ted's mind who had arranged for him to have a more pleasant and supportive boss. Three years later, I asked Ted whether he regretted his decision to give up the settlement. He said, nope, that was the best $5,000 I ever spent. God used those events to bring several people to Christ. He also helped me to overcome some major sins in my own life. I only wish I had settled it more quickly. That's evangelism right there. That's better than the best door-to-door -door evangelism, Bible club, uh, backyard Bible club, family club. And that's not to say those are nothing. Those are something. But compared to Ted, man, that's putting your money where your mouth is. That's putting the gospel in a dark spot. And that's holding loosely to your rights. What a great story. Great story. Now, here's the best story. What I would like to do while I'm sharing this story is I'd like to have our deacons and elders come pass out the elements. I'd like the elements to be sort of in front of you, be passed to you where you're holding them. And Clint, I threw the curveball at you. You can kind of be poised and ready. We'll have a silent supper while it's passed out. And I want to share a couple of passages with you. And then we're going to respond by taking the supper together heartily. And then we'll respond in song. Is that okay? Y'all come on up. Start passing out, please. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The last example, the alpha example, the ultimate example of one who has given up his rights. Thankfully, our Savior did not exercise his right to justice. By allowing himself to be wrongly accused, by allowing himself to be beaten, by submitting to the cross, he set his rights aside and became our innocent substitute. And you want some rationale, you want some motive and reason, you want some fuel, know that the mercy that you swim in was, extra, was one, or the salvation that you swim in was won by this Savior who gave up his rights. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't walk in eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Justice is absolutely character of our God, but you need to know that's the backdrop for grace and mercy. While he had rights to those things, he didn't exercise them. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his, in, his, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
realize a story like Ted is interposed on top of that. There are people that work in Ted's government agency with him that could say that about Christ ultimately, but that they, they could also say, you know what? By Ted's wounds, I've been healed. By Ted holding loosely to his rights, he became a sweet aroma, and I smelled the aroma of the gospel for the first time. Man, our Lord did it, and he did it in a way that gives us life. The blessing for us is salvation for those united by faith to Christ. Had he exercised his rights, there would be no sacrifice at all. There would be no ark. There would be no cross. There wouldn't have been a substitute. There wouldn't have been a way to be right with our creator. And I'm going to end with one passage before we actually take our supper together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among, your, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is written to the Philippian church. It could be written to the Corinthian church, and it could be written to this church. Have this mind among yourselves, people of God. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we take this supper each week, it is a weekly reminder of what he's done. As we eat and drink this meal, we're not just engaging it intellectually, although we are. Everything in us is taking this in. We're being reminded of how our Savior moved so that it will make Ted's of all of us. You see that? It'll make Ted's of our wives who are not fighting for their right to be happy, fighting for their right to rest, fighting for their right to one thing or another, or our husbands fighting for their right to this or that. Make Ted's of all of us. Can we take this supper together enjoying that? Enjoying one who didn't even account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing so that we might come into this family. Man, let's take it heartily together. Take, eat, and drink. Dear Lord, I pray that this series of messages that we've been working through for the last month and a Sunday, and then this Sunday as well, that you will use these times where we stop down as a church to make us people who are walking in a way to where people can see that our faith has cost us something, to see that our faith is genuine, to see that our faith is more important to us than our rights even. Lord, I don't ask for opportunities where our rights have to die, but I know they're going to happen. And in those occasions, I pray that our rights will be subjected first and foremost to the advancement of the gospel, that that will be the de defining instrument in whether or not the gospel is advanced. I pray for husbands to think that way, wives to think that way, young people to think that way about whatever they think their, might, their rights ought to be. I pray that for employees to think that way. I pray for folks just being part of the local body of believers to think that way where we hold loosely to our rights and at the same time may seek justice. Show us how to do this in a way that brings glory to you. Show us how to do this in a way that brings glory to you publicly. Rather than bringing things in front of the public square that are besmirching your name, I pray that we will have opportunity to bring things into the public square that make much of this story that we're walking in and living under. Thankful for this supper that reminds us each week of who did this perfectly.
and what he earned for us in this work and these righteous garments that have been reckoned ours. We wear them marveling. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.